Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. For those of you who don't uh, know me, or if I don't know you, my name is Michael Adzevic, and I'm one of the um, elders here at Kishwaukee Bible Church. Um, and as Jesse mentioned, uh, this morning we're going to be going through our last doctrinal topic uh, in our summer series that we've titled uh, The Story of What We Believe. And again, as Jesse mentioned, we've go- been going um, piece by piece uh, through each section of the draft of our doctrinal statement. Um, and although the series is kind of drawing to a close, we'll finish officially next week. Um, what we're going to talk about today uh, is, is definitely not the end. Uh, for those of us who have trusted in Christ, what we're going to talk about today um, is just the opposite. It is a glorious beginning. Today we're going to talk about the return of Christ, um, some of the elements associated with that, and our, our future hope. But before um, we do that... What I want to do is share of an instance um, in my own life where I finished up another series uh, that was very significant in my uh, journey towards Jesus. Uh, Back in fifth grade, we used to have this thing called uh, story time, right? The concept is not that hard to to understand. It's basically when the teacher would read a story to the class. Uh, And during my fifth grade year, one of the books or stories that uh, my teacher read to us was The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, And I remember my fifth grade self just being really drawn and being really captivated by that story uh, and by that book. And so fast forward about two years later... Um, I was walking through our junior high library, and I noticed that book on the shelf, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and noticed that it was the first book uh, in a seven-book series. So I quickly checked out uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, made my way through that book quickly, and then sort of binged through the following six books just as quickly, like it was a good show on Netflix. And I remember getting to the end of the very last book, which is called uh, The Last Battle, uh, and reading sort of the last paragraph. So I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. Um, If you don't want to, I'm going to share what happens at the end. So if you're going to work your way through that, um, I would cover your ears, put on your earmuffs, um, because I want to share a little bit about the ending um, of that book. But at the end, um, this is where Aslan, the lion, explains to some of the human characters that after many, many times uh, before having having sent them back to Earth from Narnia, that this time that they weren't going to be sent back to Earth. In fact, that this time they they had actually died and they were about to begin a new existence. And in describing that existence, Lewis, through Aslan, said this, Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, 
But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Now that ending had a profound impact on my seventh grade self. And remind you, this is before I had put uh, my faith and Jesus, I remember just feeling this emotion, this desire that I didn't even know that I had this sort of longing of wanting this kind of reality where where every chapter is better than the one before. Now, that longing was paired with at the time a realization that that kind of reality just wasn't possible, that I was stuck in this world with all of its pain and broken relationships, and difficulty. At the time, I thought that this world was all that there was. Right, so those are some deep thoughts for a seventh grader, um, but they were there. And so the, the emotion was so real that I can almost tap into it, um, tap into it now. But it would be just a few months later that I would actually put my faith uh, in Jesus. And at some point after that, realizing that this existence that Lewis described that I longed for would be an existence that I could look forward to which I could look forward. I have a future hope that's been secured for me through Jesus. And that future hope is tied to the eventual return of Christ someday for all of us who trust in Christ. Our future reality is revelation 21, a new heavens, a new earth. A time when there'll be no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. And as we just um, sang not too long ago, um, earth will have no sorrows that heaven will not be able to heal. And this morning, we're going to dive into that future, as well as some other elements tied uh, to Jesus' return. Now, this topic is difficult to explain with just one passage, uh, but we're going to be mostly planted in the book of 2 Peter, chapter 3, verses 10 to 13. 2 Peter, chapter 3, verses 10 to 13. So you can turn there now. Uh, but we'll also visit from some other passages, uh, mainly Jesus' Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 to 25, as well as um, Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. But for now... Um, Please follow along as I read from the book of 2 Peter, chapter 3. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with the roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, our great Lord God, I thank you that through Christ we can have true, real, lasting hope in this life. Hope for a future that is far better than we could ever imagine. That we can have assurance in this life that one day Jesus is going to return and make all wrong things right again. And I pray, Lord God, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, that as we examine this topic of Jesus' return, that you would stir in us a desire and a passion to live expectantly for that return, God. That you would stir in us a passion to live evangelistically in making Christ known to others, to live holy and godly lives. And ultimately, Lord, to live hopefully as we consider your promise of a new heaven and a new earth. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, I'm going to talk about the return of Christ in four sections. Um, The first one is going to be um, the nature of Christ's return. Uh, The second is going to be the judgment in Christ's return. The third is going to be the call in Christ's return. And then finally, uh, the promised future. In Christ's return. But before we kind of dive into our section, just a really quick background um, on this book that we're in the book of Second Peter. Um, it was written by Peter uh, to a group of churches located in what is now Turkey, what he calls Asia Minor. And these believers, these Christians were being persecuted for their faith. They were suffering. And Peter writes both of his letters to encourage them to press on. Uh, As those who have been born again to a living hope, um, they were to imitate uh, Jesus. And just as Christ suffered, so too um, would they suffer. And so he writes to encourage them, to help them to persevere. And he also writes to them to protect them from false teaching. Uh, And it's clear that false teaching had started to creep into the lives of these believers as it concerned the return of Christ. Um, Earlier on in this chapter, chapter 3, Peter mentions that there have been what he calls scoffers, questioning the Lord's coming, saying things like, what's happening with this day of the Lord? Doesn't seem like God's going to act. Doesn't seem like anything is going to happen. But Peter tells these Christians that though it seems like they've been waiting a long time, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. That the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is actually being patient towards them, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And then Peter begins some instructions um, about Christ's return, which leads us in um, to verse 10. And we'll talk about sort of the nature of Christ's return. Our passage starts out by saying, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with the roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. So the first and most important thing uh, is that Jesus is coming back. There is no question. We don't know when it's going to happen. It's not something that we can predict. Uh, But when he does come back, it is going to be like nothing we have ever seen. Jesus is going to show up on this scene in a big, big way. 
And as it concerns that unpredictability about his return, this is something that Jesus, as well as Paul, both confirmed. In Matthew, Jesus says, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. In Luke, Jesus says, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not uh, expect. And then Paul, in his first letter to the Thessalonians, says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So it's going to happen at a time we can't predict. And while Christ's first arrival here was in the humble settings of a manger in Bethlehem, um, his second arrival, it is going to be in much glory. His second arrival is going to be in much glory and much power. It is going to be awesome. And for those of you that are keeping track of the word, it's going to be awesome, 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 awesome. <laughs> and as it concerns that awesomeness, um, Peter tells his readers that accompanying Jesus' arrival, something is going to happen to the heavens and the heavenly bodies, which his readers would have understood as sort of the sun, the moon, the sky, and stars. And Peter says, the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. So the environment is going to change, not be completely annihilated, but, but renewed and redeemed, because God always seems to renew not destroy parts of his creation that are marred by sin. And, and this awesomeness of Christ's return, its power and glory, is something that Jesus confirmed. Again, in the book of Matthew, when he said that in those days the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So power, glory, awesomeness. And Jesus mentions this uh, in the tail end when he said he's going to gather his elect from the four winds. Um, So also along with Christ's arrival is going to be this gathering of all those who have put their faith in Christ from the beginning of time. Paul in First Thessalonians expands on this when he says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now, you could preach a whole sermon or a series of sermons probably just, just devoted to our resurrection. But when Christ returns, right, those who have already died, who have been existing with Christ, are going to receive their resurrection bodies. And then those who are alive at that time are going to be caught up with them. In the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, Paul beautifully describes what that process is going to be like and how our resurrection uh, is tied to Jesus' resurrection. Now we are in bodies that are perishable, but we will put on imperishable bodies. And when that moment that we change will come past that saying, a great verse, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death. Where is your sting? 
So we'll have bodies that are no longer marred by the stain of sin, that are in the mold of Christ, that are imperishable, that are ready for eternity, an eternity that we'll talk about in a little bit. But as it concerns the nature of Christ's return, a lot's going to be going on, right? Um, it's going to be awesome. And, it's going, and its occurrence is going to be like a thief in the night. We're not going to be able to predict it. There's no mathematical code or, or secret messages hidden in the Bible that will allow us to pinpoint the time and day. But while we can't predict it, it is something that we should be expecting. And we should live expectantly, realizing that Christ could... Christ's coming could happen at any time, and we need to exhibit our readiness for that return as we live our lives um, each day. And as I've sort of processed and thought through um, this topic for today, uh, I think one of the things that has convicted me the most is that I don't spend a lot of time thinking about Christ's return and all of its implications. I'm not always living expectantly for it. I mean, life is so busy that I barely know what's going to be happening tomorrow, um, let alone what's going to be happening in the future. Right? And right now, as it concerns expectant living and expectant waiting, uh, right now, the only thing I'm waiting expectantly for is for my Zillow app to tell me that the, my dream house is on the market at an affordable price. Right? Um, but we're called to live expectantly uh, for Christ's return. We'll read in verse 12 that we are supposed to be waiting for that return to happen. A return that is a major theme in the New Testament. One in 25 verses deals with it. It's mentioned 318 times over the course of 260 chapters in the New Testament. Christ's second, retur- second arrival is prophesied more often than Christ's first arrival um, in the Old Testament. So it's something that we need to be conscious of, that we need to be expectant for. So now let's talk a little bit about uh, the judgment in Christ's return. Peter goes on to say in verse 10 that the earth and all the works that are done on it will be exposed. So Jesus is coming to judge. He's coming to judge humanity. He's coming to judge the works that are being done here on earth. That which is wicked and evil will be exposed. It will be vanquished. Justice will be served. Even in using that phrase, the day of the Lord, Peter is invoking a time when God would vindicate his name and bring judgment on those who refuse to believe. In Matthew 25, Jesus spoke um, also about the judgment that would accompany his return when he said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right And the goats on his left. In the book of Acts, Paul, when he was in Athens at the Aragopagus, proclaimed that the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness 
by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So when Jesus comes back, he is going to bring judgment for each person that has ever existed. And the basis of that judgment is going to be whether or not one has accepted or denied Jesus for salvation. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever rejects the Son shall not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Hebrews 9.27 says, Just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. And for those who have rejected God's offer of salvation through Christ will experience not only physical death, they'll not only die once, but they'll also experience spiritual death, what the Bible calls this the second death, eternal separation from God forever. Revelation chapter 21 is often one of great encouragement for us as we read those opening verses and hear about our future existence, the time when there'll be no more mourning or crying or pain. But when you read on, when you get to verse 8, it also spells out the existence for those who have rejected Christ. It says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So knowing that Christ is coming back to judge humanity should create within us a priority to live evangelistically. Uh, to make Christ known to others. Again, right in this chapter, right before verse 10, Peter tells um, these believers that God is being patient right now. He's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now is the time when God is saving people. And while it's his work alone, he uses us in that process. And we need to be out sharing God's love, grace, and mercy um, with others. Recently, I remember hearing uh, the story of Penn Gillette, um, who is, I guess, half of the magician duo Penn and Teller. Um, but I guess he's also a passionate um, atheist as well. And so a couple years ago, uh, at the conclusion of a show, he had, or during the show, he had pulled um, an audience member up to do a magic trick um, with him. And I guess that audience member, knowing that he was an atheist, gave him a New Testament, um, wrote a little message in it, and actually had a conversation um, with Penn afterwards. Um, And Penn said this about that experience with this man. He said that he was kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me and gave me this Bible. Uh, He goes on to say, I don't respect people who don't evangelize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there is heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, I mean, how much do you have to hate somebody not to evangelize? How much do you have to hate someone 
to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that. He then, uh, the atheist, then offered an illustration to support his point. He said, if I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you, there's a certain point that I tackle you and get you out of the way, right? And this is more important uh, than that, right? And this is from an atheist. So the point is, though, that Jesus is coming back. He's coming back to judge humanity, Um, based on God's offer of salvation through Christ. And while we wait for Christ's return, we have good, great news uh, to share with others. So let's talk about the call in Christ's return. As we move on in our our text here, um, Peter gets a little practical by sharing with these young Christians how their knowledge of this truth should influence their lives as they wait for Christ. He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Now, I think that the way the ESV words it, I could, I get kind of tripped up on it, the way the ESV words it. I'm going to read the NIV version, which has been helpful, at least for me, as I've been processing through this, which says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. So Peter is telling these these young Christians, and by extension us, that since this is true, since Jesus is coming back, since he's going to change everything to bring judgment, that your knowledge of this, your belief that this is true, should have an effect on the way that you live. He tells them that they should live holy and godly lives. Holy, lives that are set apart, that are distinct in this world. Godly, lives that reflect that we follow Christ. So what does that look like? I mean, it's not a checklist, legalistic kind of life, but if we follow Jesus' own teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, on the Mount it, it's a life that, that should be salt and light, shining for the whole world to see. It's a life where we love our enemies, give to the needy, pray, seek to store up treasures in heaven, not on earth. A life that we seek to trust God as our provider and not be judgmental. If we follow Paul's instructions on what it means to live godly lives, it means we should be fruit of the Spirit people, exhibiting love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, faithfulness, and gentleness. Also, Paul says that we should be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, seeking good for one another, not repaying evil for evil. We should love one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens. Going back to Jesus, we should be loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. We should be going out and making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We should be living holy and godly lives. Then Paul says something, or Peter says something interesting after that. He says that we should be waiting for and hastening Christ's coming. We should hurry that day along, speed its coming. 
Now, I don't fully get it, right? I believe, like I know many of you do, that God has fixed the day. He's set the day when Christ is going to return. I also know that God doesn't need our holy lives to bring about or hasten Christ's coming. But I also know that Christ isn't going to come if we're just sitting on our hands, if we're sitting on the sidelines, not doing the work that he has called us to do. He's not going to come if we're just blending in with the world. Um, If Christ is our king, if we follow him, if we believe all these things are true, if we are, then we need to be living like citizens in his kingdom now, not waiting for that day when he will return. Christ's return and its implications should influence the output of our lives. We don't live for Christ in a legalistic, checklist sort of way, but our transformed hearts should propel us to live fervently and diligently for him. So next, let's talk about the promised return um, in Christ's coming. Paul concludes, or Peter concludes this section by saying, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So here is the crux, right, of the future hope to which we cling. According to God's promise, a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells will be established. I think it's worth it again to read sort of the opening verses of Revelation 21, um, where it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Going back to how our lives hasten Christ's coming, I mean, why wouldn't we want to hasten this day along as we listen and hear about what our future existence for us who trust in Christ is? To use the word again, it sounds awesome. We're heading for a time when everything that was messed up from the fall, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, ate that apple, when sin entered into the world, We're heading toward a time when everything is going to be fully restored. Our dwelling place will be with God. The pain, the death, the crying, the mourning, all these things. All these things will be vanquished. The creation will be set free from the bondage that sin has placed upon it. And the knowledge of this future hope should give us something uh, to which to look forward. It should give us comfort in times of difficulty, pain, persecution, in times of sorrow. It should give us perseverance to push through the difficulties and the heartaches of life. And as I was reflecting on this reality of the new heavens and the new earth, I I couldn't help but think about my mom. 
Um, over the years, I've shared with uh, many of you that before I was born, uh, my mom was diagnosed with something called um, schizophrenia. And it is a tough, a tough diagnosis, uh, which gives the individual an altered sense of reality, heightened paranoia, delusions, just really, uh, really tough. And it's something that growing up um, had really... Um, robbed me of having a quote-unquote normal um, relationship um, with my mom. But I know that the things like schizophrenia are a result of the fall. It's the result of sin. It's the result of this world not being quite right. And I long for a time when there'll be no more schizophrenia or cancer or tumors or old age, pulled muscles, stubbed toes. Right? I long for a time when there'll be no more conflict, broken relationships, stress, wars, political divisiveness. And that time is coming. The time is coming when we will feast and weep no more, when we will say goodbye to the shadowlands. The dream will be over and the holidays um, will begin. We have a future hope of a new heaven and a new earth, a place where our dwelling place will be with God, and the effects and stains of sin will be no more. So let's draw this to a close. Um, The draft of our doctrinal statement frames the return of Christ as future hope and says the following. You can read, I think it's in your bulletin. It says, Jesus has promised that he will someday return to earth and put all wrongs right again. On that day, the dead will be raised and all humanity judged. Those who put their faith in Jesus will be welcomed into everlasting life. Those who did not are condemned to everlasting punishment. Jesus' followers will then finally experience the full restoration of their relationship with God, dwelling with him forever in his eternal kingdom. For now, we live as citizens of that kingdom, living for Christ, sacrificing for others, and proclaiming this story until he returns. As I mentioned toward the beginning, this topic is difficult to explain exhaustively with one passage in 30 minutes. We didn't even touch upon elements like the millennium or the tribulation, but, but as I was talking about this, this, this topic with, with some good friends this week, Um, One of them reminded me that this entire topic and all its elements, future hope, the judgment, the resurrection of the dead, all of it can be summed up in two words. Jesus wins. And he does. And he will. So together, let's encourage and stir each other up to live holy and godly lives, making Christ known to others and waiting for and hastening his return. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that that is true, that Jesus wins, and that by your mercy and your grace, that you allow rebels like us to be part of that victory uh, through faith in Christ alone. And God, I ask and pray that as we consider some of these truths associated with Christ's return, as we go back to our homes today, as we live our lives this week, that we would desire to live holy and godly lives, knowing that you are saving people. Father, I pray that we would seek to make your salvation in Christ known to others. God, we thank you for the great hope that we have.
of the future hope that is ours through Christ. And I pray these things in his name. Amen.